Hello, 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 it's me, Damien Barr, welcoming you back to another book of the week. Yes, it's another week already. Where did last week go? Thank you again for listening to the Literary Salon podcast. It's lovely to have you here. And as always, it's a pleasure to tell you about the books that we are most excited about. Now, I just love the title of this next one, One for Sorrow, Two for Joy. How brilliant is that as a title? I wish that I had thought of it. It is by Marie Claire Amwa, who is a barrister. She's also a trustee of the Black Cultural Archives in Brixton, which is a national heritage charity dedicated to collecting, preserving, and celebrating the histories of African and Caribbean people in Britain. And they're at Windrush Square in Brixton in their very lovely building. And they've got incredible collections. So please do check them out and drop by for a visit now that they have reopened. So anyway, Back to Mary Claire, who is obviously very busy being a barrister and a trustee, but also a writer. So she was recently awarded the John C. Lawrence Award by the Society of Authors to complete her debut novel. So let's just be clear, she won an award for her book before she'd finished it. Amazing. It's published by Indie Press One World, the winner of two Booker Prizes. So, you know, they've obviously got very good taste. Now, the novel follows Stella, who is a child of Ghanaian heritage who's raised in London by an abusive father and a mother who feels powerless to prevent his violence. This trauma affects Stella really deeply and makes for a really complex coming-of-age story. So as Stella matures, as she grows up, the prose evolves with her and it's a really hard trick to pull off that on the page to see somebody growing up in language in words but Mary Claire manages to do that. Stella is very lovable and we root for her all the way just as she roots for seeing the right number of magpies. Not one for sorrow but two for joy. The Observer has already called the book a bittersweet rite of passage and a heartfelt debut. So, with themes of resilience, survival, and most of all, friendship, here's Marie Claire with a passage about a night out with the girls. Hi, I'm Marie Claire Amwa, and I'm so honoured to be reading exclusively for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my debut novel, One for Sorrow, Two for Joy. I'm going to read from a chapter called Busted, in which Stella and her friends attempt that which most teenagers do at one point in time or another, which is to go somewhere they shouldn't without the knowledge or consent of their parents. For Stella, this represents something far greater than an act of rebellion. Safe in the friendships that she has made at secondary school, Stella is growing in character and confidence. She's discovering unexplored parts of herself that have been unable to thrive in the environment of domestic violence that she has known as a child. This experience will add to the fabric of the girl's friendship, which is so important to Stella as she embarks on a journey which considers at its heart how does a person learn to heal and feel whole against the backdrop of childhood trauma. Busted. Farah is not sure about red lipstick, but she is sure that if her mum finds out, she will literally ground her for the rest of her life. It's all about the eyeliner anyway. 
We take turns for Farah to apply black liquid liner to our upper lids, sitting still like mannequins, our mouths resting in perfect pouts. With her expert hand, Farah sets down the eyeliner and takes up a small brush dusted in shimmery lilac. Close your lid, don't squeeze it. I exhale to relax my eyelids as she glides the brush over them to complete the look. My turn! We are tickled by the fact that the same eyeshadow looks completely different against Ema's pink skin to the way it does against mine. It transforms her eye colour from a familiar green to a sky blue. She chooses a purple top to match her sparkling eyeshadow and bronzer over blush for her cheeks. You're a pro. Thanks, Farah. Ema's parents think she's having a sleepover at Kemi's. It's totally fine. They trust me. Kemi looks amazing in a figure-hugging dress. Her parents are chilled, but the less they know, the better. A birthday party in Brixton, if they ask. Erin's from school. Farah agrees that Kemi was right to ignore her advice. The red on her lips looks show-stopping. And it's matte, not glossy. I don't have to answer to my mum, my dad or soul, but I don't want to share that. My mum is on nights, she'll never know. We dance to getting ready music as we take turns to look in the mirror. Ema has prepped a sickly sweet cocktail that is as strong in colour as it is in taste. I have abandoned my cornrows and tamed my thick hair into a chemically straightened style, sight parted. Kemi wears her naturally soft hair in gentle twists, styled in a half-up, half-down do. We turn simultaneously and suddenly when Auntie Money knocks on Kemi's bedroom door and walks into her room. She takes a deep breath when she lays eyes on us. Wow, you girls look amazing! I can't believe how grown up you all are! We smile in unison and tilt our necks from left to right as Auntie Money spritzes us with expensive perfume. Let Daddy know when you're ready. He's waiting to drop you. Kemi maintains her mum's gaze as she gently pushes a bottle of archers out of view with a heeled foot. It's fine, Mum. We'll get the bus. We're going to uni next year. Auntie Money and Uncle Obi concede to our maturity and to public transport as they wave us off in the direction of Erin's birthday party in Brixton. The man who takes a seat two rows behind us on the top deck is handsome at a glance. He is also a Morley's fried chicken eating, bus pole holding, no volume lowering weirdo. He wants us to know that Tupac is his homeboy and that he's very much alive. Farah straightens her back as if preparing to write down Tupac's new address. Yes, Tupac is alive and well because they were chilling together and bunning weed last night. It is only at the mention that he's on his way to meet his boys Biggie and Pac that the fallacy is confirmed. Farah's shoulders relax. And guess what? The feds are never going to find out who killed Pac. He knows, but he ain't telling. Do we know why? We do not. Cause stitches get snitches. That's what's up. I can tell from the way Kemi has narrowed her eyes that she is fighting an urge to correct the expression, snitches get stitches. Ema pleads her into silence with wide, unblinking eyes. 
Irony hangs in the air with the smell of unwashed clothes as the Morley's fried chicken man gifts to the top deck his enthusiastic rendition of It Was All A Dream by the notorious B.I.G. Spitting bars on the M.I.C. for real as chicken and saliva escape his mouth during his impassioned performance. Ema, Farah, Kemi and I manage a wordless conversation, communicating entirely with our eyes. We are trapped between a place of fear and uncontrollable laughter. We succumb to laughter as the Morley's fried chicken man interrupts his impromptu performance to disembark at the Hootenanny stop, but only when the bus doors have safely closed. When the bouncer waves us through the entrance to the club, we exchange wide smiles of triumph and delight, explanations of forgotten ID shelved for the night. We choose the dance floor of the R&B room over the cloakroom to store our coats. The cost does not justify the hangar, we agree. Ema's dad gave her £50 for a sleepover pizza, which she redirects to the bar. Three rum and cokes, one with Diet Coke, please, and a plain Coke. Can you add a slice of lemon to each? Thank you. What Farah lacks in alcohol consumption, she makes up for in nicotine inhalation. We take turns to accompany her to the smoking area at the entrance of the club. Farah is concerned that there is a man who keeps staring at her from across the dance floor. The one who looks like Ron Weasley. Ema decides that he is off his face and that we shouldn't make eye contact with him. The smoke machine transforms the dance floor into a clouded utopia as we dance around our coats to Black Street and Genuine and Drew Hill. On cue and channeling Khalif, we lean into each other to confirm that it is our milkshake that brings all the boys to the yard and they're like, it's better than yours. Missing all but two glacé cherries to make our performance MTV worthy. When the chorus of the next song drops, I turn to ask Farah whether she can pay my telephone bills, can she pay my automobiles, and then to Kemi, I don't think you do. Ema's gestures mirror mine as we tell each other with conviction and resolve, you and me are through. Each of us reaching for our inner Beyonce as we sing and dance on our clouded stage. Ron Weasley is having a fit. He's going to have a fit on Kemi. Oh my God, is he okay? A frantic look for help. Help for Ron. With a look of terror on her face, Kemi braces to catch him. Until she realises that Ron Weasley is not having a fit at all. He is challenging her to a dance-off. Ron Weasley's dance moves are dangerous. He does not know about Kemi's dance moves or personal space. He thinks that he is body popping. We know that he is not. When I say Ollie, you say I. Ollie, I. Ollie, I. Ollie, Ollie, Ollie. I, I, I. Kemi announces over the noise of hedonism that we should go to Ibiza next year. To confirm it as the best idea ever, the DJ sounds a piercing horn and emits a gust of smoke across the dance floor. The smoke spreads like a field of clouds and makes our feet, strained in high heels and discomfort, temporarily invisible. Mr Kelly is invisible too, as he approaches us on the dance floor on a no-nonsense mission. 
the no hats, no jeans, no trainers dress code temporarily suspended to allow him entry to the club to retrieve his daughter and her friends from its premises. Mr Kelly having informed the bouncer that he had reason to believe that there are four underage girls, descriptions given, in this club right now and having secured confirmation from said bouncer that he had failed to ID said girls. Our shock in seeing Mr Kelly on the dance floor causes Ema to direct her question. Don't you wish your girlfriend was hot like me? To her dad, her volume disappearing with the smoke from the dance floor. We lower elevated arms, straightened dancing feet and sober girlish laughter, our mouths agape. The sight of Mr Kelly's face makes something that was very funny, not funny anymore. The smoke, now disappeared completely, adds clarity to the fact that we have been well and truly busted. We collect our coats in silence. Our dancing quartet, disbanded until further noticed, is escorted off the dance floor by Mr Kelly and a burly security guard. At the exit, Ron Weasley winks at us. He has a gold tooth and his flies are open. Mr Kelly drives us home to Ema's house because it is too late to knock on your parents' doors. Mr Kelly is cross and serious, but he does not shout. He is going to trust us to tell our parents the truth about tonight, a lesson in accountability. Ema, in the passenger seat, focuses on the early morning revellers outside her window to avoid eye contact with her dad. They stagger in a way that alcohol-inspired revellers do. In the back seat, Farah and Kemi exchange looks that teenagers who have no idea what they are going to tell their parents exchange. Sandwiched in between them, I can't get over how much fun I had tonight. Ema making cocktails, Kemi hiding the bottle of Archers from her mum, who was literally standing right in front of it. Farah doing our makeup, the crazy man on the night bus, Ron Weasley. I had the best time ever. I wish we could do it all over again. Mr Kelly doesn't tell Ema off in front of us. I don't know if he's going to tell her off at all. Ema's mum still makes us crumpets with eggs to order in the morning before Mr Kelly drops us home. Now, I have to say, we don't always get singing with our readings, but thank you, Mary Claire, for your reading and even more so for your singing. When we're doing Book of the Week, we ask the author to choose the passage that they want to read. And I love that Mary Claire chose this bit because it really shows how the book shifts, you know, just turns just like that from joyfulness to fear of repercussions. And that's just a feeling that I recognise too, I have to say. One for Sorrow, Two for Joy is a hugely accomplished debut by an author who has a promising writing career ahead of her. And I said that like a head teacher, but it's true. 
I highly recommend grabbing a copy of the book from your local indie bookshop. It's published by One World. It's available everywhere. If you get it from our bookshop on bookshop.org, you will support the work that Alex Allen does. So please share this episode with a friend who loves new voices. You know that they love to be ahead of the trend. And we're going to be giving a copy of this book away in a giveaway soon. So keep an eye on our socials. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>